Hey, it's Kathy. I just want to let you know that I'm doing a free five-day workshop. It's called the Abundance Activation Challenge, and it starts today. And it's not too late for you to join us. Today is the last day to join. Go to kathyheller.com slash five day to sign up. The pre-party has been happening and it's been such a blast. There's so many high vibe women in there who are ready to call in more abundance. I know that you will love that you showed up for this. I'll be live at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern every day this week, teaching you how to become a master manifester. You are just going to have the best time. If you want to join us, sign up at kathyheller.com slash five day. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So if you can hear in my voice, it's pretty chill. It's because I am, I've been in a meditation retreat for the last few days. It's a week long and we're halfway through. And right now I'm sitting overlooking the ocean on the balcony. So maybe you can hear the waves in the background. I feel so grateful to have spent this time just really dropping in. And it's pretty amazing. Like there was a time where I couldn't meditate for more than like a minute or two. And I'm learning how to like transcend all the spinning thoughts and just, just go to the deeper place, like come home to myself. And I feel like I'm going to have lots of cool stuff to share, but we did this walking meditation a few days in a row at sunrise on the beach. And it was just so incredible and so powerful to really like just be there standing there at the edge of the world like right on the shore watching the birds just feeling such gratitude to be here and really thinking about like what does it mean to live into my potential what does it mean for us all to really feel worthy of receiving and like stop apologizing and just step into our truth and our path. And one of the things that Dr. Joe Dispenza says all the time is like the when and the how is not our business. Like our job is just to fully like tap into like, what do you want? And like feel into it and just start moving toward and holding the resonance of what you really want and like feeling, just feeling into it. And then the synchronicity, right? The synchronicity just starts to line up. So it's been such a beautiful thing to be here. And I love all of you so much. And I, I also heard Joe Dispenza say he's been leading this retreat and he's just been so awesome. But he also said that God is so hidden because he's in each one of us. And it's the last place people usually think to check. I thought that was so powerful. And I just wanted to remind us all that we often think that the answers come from outside or that salvation will come from some other person. Or I just think it's important to remember, like, regardless of any elections, like we are the ones, like each one of us become the heroes in our, in our stories, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And And we need to contribute that which we came here to give. And I'm just so certain that each one of you has so much incredible light and goodness. And so I'm here to remind you that we need you. So let's go. Now, 
Today we have such a phenomenal guest, and I have no doubt that he will inspire you and remind you that you matter and that your work matters. His name is Seth Godin. He's been here twice before, and he wrote a new book. So I'm so, so delighted that he is back. He's so wise. He's so brilliant. He's personally somebody who is such a mentor, such a person of integrity and wisdom and If you haven't heard the other two episodes that he was on here, we will link to them in the show notes because they're great. But Seth, if you don't know, he's a worldwide bestselling author, a blogger, an entrepreneur, a podcaster. He's the founder of Akimbo and All MBA, and he's in the Marketing Hall of Fame. Some of his previous books that I love are Purple Cow, This is Marketing, The Dip, and lucky for us, he wrote this new book. It's amazing. It came out on Tuesday. It's called The Practice, Ship Creative Work. And I highly encourage you to put this on your bookshelf. This is a book that's all about the process of making creative work, shipping it into the world, trusting yourself, getting back to becoming the person you seek to be. It's about finding your voice and going beyond where you are and figuring out how to do the work that matters, work that you're proud of. And It's really amazing. Every page of this book stands on its own. He has such beautiful things to say. There's never enough words to describe what a special soul he is. So I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. Without further ado, please welcome the one and only Seth Godin. Seth, welcome back. Oh, I'm back? Thank you. It's good (laughs) to be here. Thank you for being in the world and doing what you do and saying things that actually help all of us to really come back home to what really matters most in doing the work we're supposed to do. Well, thank you. The world is totally upside down. There's so much trauma. And the only way we're going to make things better is by making things better. So if I can help people turn on a light and let them turn on the light for other people, that was a good day. And you do that. You do that consistently. Um, Okay. So let's talk about your new stunning piece of work, the practice. Let's talk about a few of the things that this book really dials in. You talk about learning to trust yourself, coming back to the person you seek to be, finding your voice. What does that mean to you to really do the work that matters, to find the work that we're assigned to do? My take doesn't match what most people say. So I will try it this way. You are not entitled to an audience that appreciates you. You are not entitled to get paid for the work that you believe you were born to do. And that if you want to have a hobby, you should do it just for you. And it should be whatever the muse tells you you're supposed to do. But if you want to be a professional, if you want to ship creative work, if you want to make change happen, we have to begin with the fact that you're doing it for other people. And there is no such thing as what you were born to do. And there is no such thing as the muse. There's no such thing as external inspiration. It's a choice. If you decide to serve a small, viable audience of people who trust you, who are waiting for you, who are interested in where you are going, enrolled in the journey, and you do it for them, either they'll get the joke and you can do it again, or they won't get the joke, in which case you have to do it better. And then we repeat the process. And so they call it creative work because it's work not because it's a gift. It's so stunning. And it's probably the thing that I repeat most, which I learned from you, which is that business is radical empathy. And wow, do we need that in this world, in this moment? Radical empathy, two words that are probably missing most. And when you just began to share what you shared, you said it's opposite of what a lot of people say. 
Why is that so? Why is it that when we're growing up, people say the question is, what do you want to do when you grow up versus what problem can you solve or how can you serve? Why is it so novel? How come we're not getting that? What's the big shift that we have to do to really get in alignment with this? It's a two-part shift. And the first part is that industrialism has ruled our whole lives. Industrialism is a place where you go and do what you're told. And you have a manager who wants you to do it faster and cheaper than you did it last time. And it made us all the richest people who ever lived, right? It gave us roads and cars and factories and clothing that, you know, you can buy a wedding dress by Federal Express for $80. All of those things happen because we are cogs in a system and we built school for that. And so we start with, will this be on the test? Do I have to do this? What am I being told to do? And then we inserted, just to keep people from going crazy, follow your dream. We inserted, find your voice. And the problem is we don't want to be on the hook. We don't want to be on the hook to announce our thing because if it doesn't come true, it's on us. And so we bury that thing we call our dream and keep it a dream as opposed to turning it into a practice. And the practice says, I might not be entitled to be the ballerina who's dancing with Mikhail Baryshnikov, I might not be entitled to match whatever fantasy I had when I was seven, but I'm capable of having a practice of showing up to make a promise and keep it and to do it without a boss, to be my own boss, whether I have a job or not, where I decide what I want to stand for. But all the time we're trying to get off the hook. And I think it's better to be on the hook. Being on the hook is the best place I can imagine being. It's so true. And I hear you talk about that all the time. So when we had this conversation, the last time you're here and every time you're here is just such a gift with a capital G. I said, well, what is this calling this thing called purpose? And you said, I don't really love that question because I could be teaching canoeing in the Canadian mountains, or I could be teaching marketing and that's what I do. And what you just said is something along the lines of, well, maybe I could have a dream, but I'd have to show up and be on the hook, right? And do something. So how do we marry the two? How do we find something we love to do then if it's possible, but yet find a way to serve and offer value with that thing? Or is it just pick something that you know how to solve a problem around like marketing, whether or not it's your dream? How do we kind of figure that out? Two parts, I guess, again. First part is it's way more convenient and direct and easy to uh, love what you do than it is to do what you love. Mm. And there's nothing that people want to do now that existed 300 years ago, right? Like what I love, I would love to be an Instagram influencer with 5,000 followers. Well, Instagram didn't even exist 20 years ago. So please don't tell me that that's what you were born to do because you weren't. What you're actually seeking is an emotion, you're not seeking a job description. So what's the emotion? Oh, you'd like to be respected, treated with dignity, have a little bit of leverage for a circle of people who trust you. That, I can find a hundred ways you can do that, right? There's a waitress at the diner who has that. So if you choose to fall in love with the work, as long as the work matches the emotional setting that you're looking for, you've made huge progress toward where you want to go, right? And one of the problems that a lot of people have, for those of us who have been privileged enough to get the benefit of the doubt and be able to make a living without digging ditches or something, 
is we get trapped because we think we want one thing like make a lot of money. And then we're surprised that we go to work for an investment bank and they want us to do things that feel immoral. Well, maybe those things go together. And maybe you can't have both at the same time. Let's talk about why this book right now, you've written so many books, you've said so much. What made you want to write this book and say these things? So I don't do any consulting or coaching, but I love to hang out with people like you who I admire and who I can pontificate with and who maybe I can chime in. And what I found is that the number of people who need nuanced insight into how permission marketing works or need to get deeper into the finer points of uh, understanding status roles is very small, that people keep getting hung up on the same things. And they're about choices. They're about having a voice, trusting themselves. And so every once in a while, I try to write a book that's directly about that way of thinking, mostly selfishly, because I can hand someone a book and say, read this, and then we'll talk. But, <laughs> but also partly because you know the workshops that I've run for the last five years at Akimbo, which is now an independent B Corp, I'm proud to say, I get to watch people interact. So when I built the creatives workshop, 500 people took it. They gave and received 500 pieces of feedback per person per month. And I had to watch all of it going back and forth. And if you're an author, what a treat to be able to see the work before you have to write it down. It was huge. And I said, watching this unfold, there's a whole bunch of people who won't put in the 100 days to take a workshop, but maybe I can come to them with something in a package that makes it easier for them to get the joke. It's so good. And it is so true. Like These are the things that people do ask about all of the time. And in a few sections of the book, you talk about imposter syndrome because that comes up over and over and over again. What's your go-to response for that when people are caught up in that? I say, good for you. It means you're doing the work. If you don't feel like an imposter, you're either lazy or you're a sociopath. That if you are leading, if you are doing something that hasn't been done before, if you're making something creative, something new, something important, you will feel like an imposter because you're faking it. You've never actually done this before. So, you know, when you leave the recording studio and your album is done and you say, I made a new album, I'm going to offer it to my fans. It's going to be great. Well, you don't know it's going to be great. You just did your best. So when imposter syndrome shows up, I think the response is, thank you. Thanks for letting me know I worked hard today. Don't try to make it go away because that will make you less of who you are embrace it and realize that it's just like running a marathon and getting tired. Being tired is not a defect. Being tired is a symptom that you ran a good race. It's so true. It's kind of like when you say just dance with the fear as opposed to expecting that you're going to start once the fear goes away. It's like, I love that shift. And you said before that when people took this workshop, they got all of this feedback and, and you talk about how criticism and feedback are not the same. Can you, can you talk about that? Lots of people will give you criticism. The ones who care about you will do it because they're trying to protect you from something. The ones who don't care about you will do it because they're trying to work out their own issues, their own fear, their own dynamic. So J.K. Rowling and Harper Lee have both gotten more one-star reviews on Amazon than I have, but that's because they've gotten more reviews than I have. And all a review with one star of To Kill a Mockingbird means is, this book wasn't for me. It doesn't mean it's a bad book. And so to read that, if Harper was around, would be a mistake. 
because it's not going to help her write a better book. All it says is it wasn't for me. All right, I get it, right? You're a vegan. You went to a steakhouse, one star. They serve steak. All right, it's not for you. So we have to begin by acknowledging who's our smallest viable audience. Who are the people who we actually are serving? And then the second thing is, are they good at giving feedback or are they bad at it? Because most people are bad at it. They get awkward. They don't use the right words. They've never been in your shoes. So they don't have domain knowledge that would help you see what you need to see. So we ignore those people too. And then we're left with this other group, people who are aligned with you, people who are enrolled and people who are good at it. Those people, it's precious. Do not ignore them. They are giving you a gift to be embraced. And it has been a lot of work for me to stretch to the point where I could do that. This is a specific example. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I wrote a book called All Marketers Are Liars. And it's a terrible title. It's the worst title I've ever put on a book. (laughs) And it cost me a lot of impact and sales for a book I'm really proud of. My publisher said, I don't think that's a good title. And I said, what do you know? I'm ignoring your criticism. I'm going to call it that. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm listening to the voice inside. Well, this book was called Trust Yourself. In fact, I bought trustyourself.com and there's an excerpt of the book there. And Nikki, my editor said, I think there's a better title. And this time I said, that's why I'm here, Nikki, because you know better than me, because you have touched more books than I have, because you have thought about this without getting confused the way I get confused because it's my book. So yes, Nikki, we're going to change the title. And that was a big 10-year period of me learning who to listen to and how to listen to them. What does that mean to you to trust yourself? How do we do that and yet be on the hook to serve at the same time? Yeah. So Kathy, do you ever talk to yourself? Yes. When you talk to yourself, who's talking and who's listening? That's such a good question. I guess that there's the part of me that's the the spinning thoughts and then the part of me that's sort of like the connected to what's really me. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we use phrases like that all the time without thinking about the fact that we're asserting there's two things in our head, but there are. And trust yourself means that other voice, the one that's grounded, that has an instinct that wants to lead. You've been censoring it, beating it up, avoiding it, weaseling out of whatever it needs to do for a very long time. But if we could trust that that path might be better than the one we're on. There's no guarantee it's going to work, but it will probably work better than our reverse engineered hack that we usually rely on will work. And so I'm being really clear, there's no guarantee, but the practice is about letting the voice out, looking at it, seeing if it's genuine in the sense that it will serve the people you care about. And if so, shipping work. And finding a way to do that. People go to enormous lengths. They invent writer's block. They drink too much. They have a shrine. They build candles. They go for a long, they have a 10,000 methods because it's so frightening in our industrialized culture to let that voice be heard. But if you don't try it, you'll never know. Mm. It's interesting. Um, David Lynch was here about a month ago. How cool is that? That was cool. And I said to him, 
for people who want to have one ounce of your success with their creative writing or filmmaking, what's your suggestion? And he said, trust yourself, right? And we start talking about getting beyond the noise. And, you know, he's so into TM, obviously, and dropping in. And I said, but you've been successful, right? Like if people eventually liked what you did. And if somebody wants to actually make money and have a career and get the show, have the Twin Peaks and all the things. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm just saying, trust yourself. Who cares if anyone likes it? And you're not necessarily going to be known for it, but trust yourself. But the Seth Godin approach is serve people. Don't worry sometimes about your own creative juices. If you want to actually have a business, it is about what people want. And so those are two really difficult things to hold simultaneously. So what do we do with that? Super juicy. (laughs) And just for the audience at home, did we practice this? We did not. Okay. So Twin Peaks, okay, small personal aside, when I was really struggling with my business for like eight years, I wanted to take my wife on a nice trip, but I couldn't afford very much of anything. And it was right at the peak of Twin Peaks. So I put together this, this whole little puzzle thing and she figured out that I was taking her to Snoqualmie Lodge in Washington for the weekend. And she like told her law firm, this is where she was so going to be. Like we had the music thing. And then we got to the airport and we flew to Paris instead. And so I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Snoqualmie Lodge where I have never been. So with that said, we need to talk about genre and we need to talk about how transgressive can you be because who is the audience you're seeking to serve? David Lynch understands the domain. David Lynch has seen more movies and television shows than you and me and 10 other people put together. He understands how to make film. He paid all of those dues. He also understood that when you're going to a network like ABC, maybe, just maybe, you can earn a hearing and you can show up. But you can't be too out of the box or you won't get on television. And you can't be too in the box or they won't bother working with you. Right. You got to be on the edge of the box. He understood and intentionally manufactured something that was right on the edge of the box, just barely tolerable by the executives because he knew if he could get through that hole, that there was a group of people, and it wasn't that many, who would say, this is the best TV show I ever saw. But most of the audience didn't think it was the best TV show they ever saw, which was fine, because in those days, ABC simply needed 30 million loyal, that's you know 10% of the population, who wouldn't give it up, right? So almost everything he's done since then has appealed to a smaller group of people. Right. And he's fine with that because he's still trying to dance in between the two. So he makes very few things that no one wants to see. He makes nothing that everyone wants to see, but because he understands genre and the domain, because he has the craft, he can navigate in between the two, right? And the same thing's true for any musician you've ever heard of. You know, if Lou Reed had made... Walk on the Wild Side 10 years earlier or 10 years later, nothing. You need to have the vision and the ear to say, the people I'm trying this for, they'll get this joke. And you're wrong a lot, but you're right more than people who aren't trying to do that. That makes so much sense. And it is so important that people hear that. And when it comes to what you keep going back to, which is the people you're trying to serve, the people you're making this for, 
I think my audience is trying to serve everybody. I think that's the big pitfall, right? So how the heck do we have a point of view and decide to serve one piece of the market? How do we choose who that piece is? And how do we start to feel safe that that's not limiting ourselves, but actually creating what's more unlimited for us? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic insight because it's true. And the reason people want to serve everyone is they think it's because they're being generous, but actually it's because they don't want to be on the hook. Right. That if you pick who exactly it's for and they don't like it, now you have a real problem, right? So if you own, open a diner, if someone doesn't like it, someone else will come along. But if you open an Ethiopian restaurant in a town that doesn't have one, only people who like Ethiopian food are going to come. If they don't like it, you're toast. And so what we've got to be able to do is find the wherewithal to say that the best way to serve is to be specific. So, you know, my wife now owns uh, perhaps the biggest craft gluten-free, dairy-free bakery in America. And if you call her up and say, do you have anything that's sugar-free, doesn't have eggs in it, and this and this, she says, no, but you could buy a banana at the, the convenience store next door. She says this with full respect, but the point is, if you don't like this selection, it, this place is not for you. And what's happened in social media, which most people have completely missed, is it is not a mass medium. There is not one thing on YouTube that will be seen as many times today as Twin Peaks was when it was on television. Not one out of the billions of things that are on. That the typical uh, wow. song on iTunes gets listened to five times. Five right? It's a long tail. So it's a micro medium. It's specific. If you can say, you know, I, do, I was just watching something two weeks ago about how to sharpen a chisel and a hundred thousand people had seen it. That's a massive home run, right? But if you don't have a chisel or you like a dull chisel, this isn't for you. This is for a very specific group of people. And it's the best version of that so who exactly is the thing you're doing for? Because if you just want to be an Instagram influencer with you know, the clever garb and the good lighting with lots and lots of people who say they love you, that can be your hobby. But I don't think that's what you should devote your working life to because it's not specific and it's going to break your heart. Mm, that makes so much sense. So for people who are trying on new things and trying to validate and test an idea, what's the best process to know who the people are that you're trying to serve? What would you suggest that people do? Because if I think it's hard for people to figure out what niche to choose. Yeah. Right. And again, it's hard because you don't want to be on the hook. You don't want to fail. So we begin by acknowledging you will fail and you will fail and you will fail. And it doesn't cost very much to fail. And I had a riff and I don't think I, it ended up in the book about uh, bowling in Buffalo, New York, where, where I grew up. Bowling was a big deal. And your parents would drop you off at a very young age at the bowling alley for hours, unsupervised. And uh, it was like a dollar a game, which meant that it was eight cents a roll if you did well at the last few frames. Otherwise, it's 10 cents a roll and or five cents because there's two per frame. But every once in a while, there was unlimited bowling. And unlimited bowling was one fee for all the games you could play. I loved unlimited bowling because it let you experiment. Each role didn't matter that much because it was free, right? Okay, so with that said, then 
we have to realize you don't have to make work that's for you. You don't have to have be a cancer survivor to be an oncologist. You don't have to be a woman to be an OBGYN, right? It might help, but it's not required. And so you make an assertion. And the assertion is there is a group of people who believe this, who are dealing with that, who might want this. You, you just say those assertions out loud. Who are these people? What do they dream of? Are there others like them? And then you figure out what your boundaries are, your constraints, because you can't succeed if there are no constraints. You won't get anywhere. You have to say, all right, my constraints are I have this much time, or I have this much money, or I will use these tools, but not these tools. And within that thing, just like David Lynch, now you have boundaries, right? And as much as creators love to complain about the censors, the censors are their friend because it lets them go right to the end of transgressive without having to run it, you know, an X-rated movie if there were no censors. It would be raced to the bottom. So within that, we then say, all right, has anyone else ever gone on a journey like this one? Now, it's entirely possible someone listening to this will do something that has never been done before, and I applaud them. But most people, including me, are going on journeys that others have gone on before. People have started companies before I started my internet company. I was early internet company, but there were people who gone before me. People had sold books to publishers before I sold a book to a publisher. Is there a path? Has this ever existed before? And then you say, all right, what's different about my approach to the path that keeps me from just saying, me too, me too, me too? It doesn't have to be completely original, no points for that, but it has to be interesting enough to be worth seeking out, to be one to search for, to look for. And just a quick aside on this, frequently people will get frustrated because they say, I can't win on Google. I want anyone who types in locksmith to find me, anyone who types in podcast to find me. And it's like, that's never going to happen again. What you want is to get people to type in Kathy Heller, because if they're looking for you, they're going to find you. And that means you have to become the kind of person, the kind of contribution that people search for by name. And the more specific you are, the more likely it is that that will happen. Oh my God, this might be one of the very best things that's ever been said on this show. And I just love it so much. It's so powerful. And what you're saying that I think my audience for sure needs to hear is not only do you need to figure out the people you're serving, but what problem do they have that you're solving? Really, really. And I love how you're, you're saying find a group of people and make an assertion. And can I help you solve this problem? And often I'm talking to people, we have you know, over 500 people in our made to do this program right now. And we work on coming up with the idea and going from idea to income in 12 weeks. And to get them to tell me when I say, tell me what the value is, who it's for, and what's the promise of your offer. It's so vague. So is it just putting a stake in the ground and trying one thing saying, I, I'm going to go for this problem and try to solve it this way and seeing if that works. And if it doesn't find a slightly different problem, how do they do that? Okay. So let's veer into the, this is marketing territory for just a little bit, because I think it's helpful. The first thing to understand is you have been seduced, not you, but your readers have been seduced into believing that if they're not on the cover of Inc. Magazine or they don't go public, they're a failure. And those weird edge case businesses are weird. You're not going to build one of those. You're going to build a valid, useful, small business that's not famous. That's fine. And it might get big. So let's talk about Tom's shoes for a minute. 
every single person who ever bought a pair of Tom's shoes in the United States already owned a pair of shoes, which means Blake was not selling shoes to shoeless people. So if you say, why did someone buy a pair of shoes? The answer is not they needed shoes because they didn't need shoes. Mm. So what actually did they need? Let's get to the base emotion that he was trying to get at. What they needed was, A, the pleasure that comes from being the first of your friends to buy a fashion accessory. Because everyone's vain a little bit, and this is a nice feeling. I discovered this. But how could they feel even better about it? Their friends need to notice. They don't want to bring it up. They want to get asked how to solve that problem. Put a logo on shoes. Almost no one had ever done that before Tom's put a logo on shoes, not sneakers, but shoes. Okay, fine. But then this is the coup de grace. This is the key to the whole thing. Love you. When someone says to you, because you've got some chips on your shoulder, because Muffy and Binky and all your other friends, <laughs> they've been lording the fact that they have more resources than you. And you only got 80 bucks to spend on a shoe, but you're hoping for some social status. They say, nice shoes. And you say, really? I'm a philanthropist too. Because buying these shoes, a kid far away also has a pair of shoes. You got a story to tell. So that's what they sold. They sold status, they sold a thrill, and they sold a story. Who did they sell it to? Just a million women. That's all, half a million women. But because they all were eager to tell the story, the word spreads. So let's say you're Lori Coop. Here's a Lori Coop mug right here. She loves making pottery. This is a long time ago. I don't know what she's doing right now. And how does she sell her mugs? Well, everyone who buys mugs already has a mug. Where are they going to buy a mug? They're going to a gift shop. When you go into a gift shop, what problem do you have, right? Well, you're looking for something that speaks to you in a certain way that tells you a certain kind of story. Are there other mugs there? Yes. So why will I buy this one? What is it about this, right? And decoding that into a consistent story that you can patiently persist with gives you a practice. And then over time, you go from having one thing to a line of things, et cetera. It's so good. And your storytelling workshop is coming up for enrollment very soon, right? Yeah, Bernadette's. And she teaches a lot of this. So the story skills workshop, I mean, you you only do things that you think are super important. And I know that Bernadette teaches it, but it's something that it's part of the, your overall umbrella. It's within that. Let's go into what you just said, because it was so gorgeous. It was like listening to a symphony. So how do people start to really understand what the story is that they're telling and what's the DNA. And then we'll definitely put the link to the story workshop because it's coming up right after this episode airs. Okay. So stories are the basic human technology before we had anything, before we had fire, any of those things, we had stories. That's how we see the world. And a story is not a collapse and it is not a fairy tale. It is something in between the two. And the way you get good at stories, maybe you do it by reading one of Bernadette's seven bestsellers, but probably you do it by practicing. And, you know, I've been given a lot of talks online since the pandemic hit, and I get one-tenth out of them that I got when I was doing them live. Because when you're doing it live in the room, you're seeing which parts of which stories resonate with people. Human beings are experts at this. 
We can even tell when we're boring our dog, right? That <laughs> the, the moment we start to lose something, we, we can feel it. And if you can practice that in a setting like in a Kimbo workshop, oh, I'm going to tell another story today and another story tomorrow and another story the day after that. So your story, you know, I could come up with words for the story of your podcast, but that wouldn't do it justice. Your podcast is about colors and feelings and emotions and endorphins and all of these things that run through people. And ultimately stories come down to life and death, joy, suffering, and status, right? Things that are mm. not, that are timeless, that have been around for thousands of years. And Julius Caesar told stories and you're telling stories. And the only question is, what are you hoping people will do to relieve the tension, right? Are you saying you can relieve the tension in the army and going overseas to fight? Or can you relieve the tension by buying this pair of shoes? But whatever it is we're trying to change, we tell a story, we create tension, and then we give people a way to relieve the tension. You're literally a songwriter. It's so, so good. And I love this, like, how can you help them relieve the tension, right? And really, instead of worrying about your funnel, concern yourself with this story and what tension they need to be relieved of. What happens though, when you think to yourself, but I don't have a good story to tell. I'm not qualified enough. I haven't learned enough. I'm not interesting enough. Where do we go to find the story that we're telling? How can we look through what's here and, and know which parts to pick out? You probably don't have a story yet. And, you know, <laughs> your honesty counts for a lot. And the question is, where are you going to start? My friend, the late, great Sir Ken Robinson. Oh, uh, amazing. Gave a TED Talk that got seen by 4 billion people or whatever it was. That's not how he started. Sir Ken started by teaching seven-year-olds or whatever it was. And it's a lot safer to go try your material out on 20 seven-year-olds, that when he and I gave our first TED Talks, no one told us they were recording them. And no one told us they were going to be on the internet. And so it was much easier to say, oh, there's only three people in the room. How can I be here for them? And then the next one and the next one. So if you're having trouble telling a story in a commercial way on the internet, why don't you start by going down to the kindergarten that is you know, sheltering in place at, at a distance and tell a story to those kids? Why don't you start by finding... Uh, three people in your town who are dispossessed or disconnected or need a helping hand and tell a story to them that we don't start by saying, I got a Google keyword strategy and a, this thing. And then I, they hook up to my mail. We start by saying, I just looked some people in the eye and I told them a story and it made a difference to them. And then we would do it again and again and again. And I've seen the talks I gave in 1989 and 1994. They're not very good. Because I was still warming up and I think I'm still warming up in the sense of there are a lot of things I haven't explored in places I want to take it. If I hadn't done a thousand speeches, I don't think you would feel like I'm telling a story for the first time. It literally just brought tears to my eyes because I, I think about the two of you, you and Sir Ken Robinson and how you've just been in it for the long haul. Like this is just who you are. And there's not a feeling of, I need an immediate ROI. It's, this is me waking up every day to do the good work that I was meant to do. And you talk about in this new book and you talk about it so often, really like showing up for the process and the part of us that needs certainty so badly and how that really is such a pitfall. And I think that what you just said really hits on it. I mean, so often people 
They'll tell me they want to start a podcast. They do seven episodes and they're done. And there's this feeling of, it's almost that there's such shame around not being an immediate success that they can't bear staying in it, right? But we have to change our relationship to the process. And you talk about trusting the process. And so how can we let go of that need for immediate validation and certainty? Because that's really a huge, huge issue, I think, standing in the way. Yeah. Well, it's funny because there's also shame with being an immediate success. I think that Ricky Lee Jones regrets often Mm -hmm. that her first album was what it was. Because now every time she performs, people want her to be a cover act of who she used to be. And what a privilege to develop your work in an out-of-town tryout over time to discover what really resonates for you. And getting hooked on the outcome is a really big problem, particularly in our culture. Will this be on the test? What does that mean? It means I'm only willing to pay attention to what you're saying if you promise me an A later, right? That in the factory setting, Don't bother doing anything if it's not going to make us a profit today. And real work, the practice is, what would you do even if you knew it was going to fail? What would be worth doing even then? And we chop that wood and we carry that water and we get the chance to do it again. And so every podcast that I know of, including yours, started with 10 listeners, just 10. And you got to stick it out. And if you're not prepared to do 100 episodes, don't start a podcast. Just don't. It's not worth it. And the same thing is true for public speaking. The same thing is true for writing. The same thing is true for blogging. The same thing is true for being a cook or a chef or a restaurant owner. If you're not prepared to have this series of learnings that some people call failure, you're going to get hooked on the outcome and that's going to ruin your work. That is just so important. It's so gorgeous. It's so important. And that's really why you guys all need to buy this book. Because this really is when you said that, I, I love that saying, chop wood, carry water, just get up and keep doing it. But I think people really believe that if it's not an immediate success, that the practice wouldn't matter, that they wouldn't wind up becoming brilliant at it. Do you think that they would? Or do you think that not necessarily? Do I think that they will become successful if they stick it out? Yeah. No, almost certainly not. But if they don't stick it out, I guarantee you will not be successful. So those are your only two choices, right? And if you pick a small enough viable audience that you can see them, feel them, hear them, your odds go way up, way up. You know, if you're a wedding photographer and you do a hundred weddings a year, you're the busiest wedding photographer in town with a hundred, right? So we're being really clear here that almost everybody doesn't need many people to be able to do work they are proud of. But we get distracted because it feels safer to say, I need more. No, actually what you need is better. And better is hard to acknowledge because that's up to you. Whereas more is up to the audience. And I would like to bring it back on you and say, you don't know what the right answer is, but you have a process. And you know that there are people who have a problem they're eager to connect around, a story they want to hear. It's not like you have to build a car factory and then launch the Edsel and lose a billion dollars. The cost of being wrong is very small, but it does mean you have to show up and you have to play a longer game. And what does it mean for people who don't really get it? What does shipping the work mean? And what does it mean to ship great work? Okay, so a few ways to talk about this. Let's start with the word great. Perfect doesn't exist and perfectionism is your enemy. 
because perfectionism is a way to hide. So if I take a car mm. like a Lexus, which is generally considered the highest quality car, and look at any part with an electron microscope, it is not perfect. It's filled with little tiny scars and things that aren't there. But its quality is very high because it meets spec. And meeting spec and perfect are different things. You know what we call something that meets spec? Good enough. And good enough means it's good enough. Now, if you think good enough means lousy, you need to redefine what good enough is, right? So when you made that podcast with David Lynch, you shipped it because it was good enough. Yeah. It wasn't perfect, but it was classic Kathy Heller. That's <laughs> the definition of good enough. And then we stop and we ship the work. Making it better than spec is a waste for everybody. Now, if you need spec to be, it's all better than the competition, the way Lexus was compared to Chevy, make that the spec. Make the spec whatever you want. But then when you hit the spec, you ship the work. Because if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. You need to be able to say to the market, I made this. And then you need to listen to what the market says when you do that. If you don't, you have a hobby. I love hobbies. There's nothing wrong with hobbies, but don't pretend your hobby is your job. I love when you just said perfectionism is just a way to hide and it's so true and you have to just ship the work. And I also love something else I've heard you say, which is that average means half of your blog posts are below average. I'm like, not yours, Seth, not yours. And you're like, no, no, mine too. That's what average means. You got to ship the work. It's just, it's so brilliant. It's so simple, but it does the thing that you said a few times, which is it puts you on the hook. Yeah. And why is that so damn scary to be on the hook? Why can't we just do it? What is that, that, all that resistance about to being on the hook? Particularly for women, but I would say for everyone, blame sits right next to shame. And shame is the dream killer. Shame is the emotion, the unexplored emotion that has changed so much of our lives. And we just don't want to be in the room with shame. But if we can't get blamed, we could avoid shame. And we don't want to get blamed. So therefore, we don't want to be on the hook. Don't blame me. I just did what I was told. And if you've ever heard someone saying to you, I was just doing my job, that's the way they deflect blame. And what it means to ship creative work is, please blame me. I made this. And you have to accept the feedback, not as you did a shameful act if it didn't work, but maybe you did it for the wrong person, or maybe you didn't understand what would have worked in that moment. And so, you know, Twin Peaks really touched me. The video I saw David do three weeks ago, meh, I lasted three minutes. I turned it off. David should feel no shame about that. He brought something to the world and it wasn't for me, but he will learn if he wants to before he makes the next thing. You're so brilliant. I was just, um, I had Dan Harris on the podcast and he's done all this meditation, of course, and sat with the Dalai Lama and everything else. And I said, so what's at the heart of this? And he said, shame, it's all shame. And that's the poison. And I told him that my mindfulness teacher always says, when you wake up in the morning and, and you have a glass key, you should invite all parts of yourself to the table, the parts of you that self-sabotage, the parts of you that are broken, the parts of you, all of it, just welcome it in. And you just hit it right there. It's shame. So how do we allow ourselves to be who we are, our messy selves and show up and do the work we're supposed to do? So I'll tell you my shortcut. It might not work for everybody. When you're swimming in the swim team, the coach has plenty to say about your flutter kick, plenty to say about how you're breathing, et cetera. Three months later, you got your summer job and a kid starts drowning four feet in front of you. Do you say, 
well, I'm not the most qualified lifeguard. Surely there's someone better than me to do this. No, because you are four feet away. You jump in the water. And when you jump in the water and you go to save that kid, did you do the perfect cross body carry? Did you do the, the mouth to mouth in a way that was beyond reproach? Of course not. But the kid's okay. You saved the kid's life. And we should not spend our days worrying about our flutter kick when there's someone we can save. And if you're there for other people, not to hustle, not to figure out how to you know, make enough money so you can retire, but there because you're actually going to help somebody get to where they are going, that's a generous act. It's not about you. It's about them. And that seems to me to make it a lot easier to deal with the feelings of shame that arise. It's like, okay, fine, but that person's not dead. Okay, fine, but that person moved forward. So yeah, I have made countless mistakes, mostly errors of omission, things I should have done, things I should have said, things I should have led. But all I can do is try to help the next person. That also brought tears to my eyes because I know my listeners so well and they needed to hear that. And because um, I think that old quote is so true that most men live lives of quiet desperation. I don't think people think that they're needed, Seth. I don't think people think that they have anything to contribute. I think that that's what's at the heart of it. So it has to be perfect and they need more credentials and they need to work for somebody else and whatever they have, there is so much shame because they focus on all the things that they think are broken and they don't know that simply just making space for another person or, or doing their absolute best is adding something to the tapestry. How do you help? Because you do do it so well. And I don't know if you know that you do it, but you make people feel seen just because you are so present. You give such people such dignity just in who you are. But how do you help people really get that memo? I'm not going to get the facts quite right, but there was a woman in Texas who, according to 7-Eleven, sold more cups of coffee than any person would ever work <laughs> for them. And when she retired, hundreds of people turned out to wish her well, because she remembered everyone's name. She had a nice thing to say every single time they came in. It's just a cup of coffee, but it's not just a cup of coffee. You can get your caffeine much more easily a different way. People would go out of their way to come have this woman look them in the eye and say, have a great day, Steve. So why don't we just start with that, right? Why don't we just start with, if you're feeling lonely, afraid, if you're feeling like the world isn't as bright as it could be. Maybe somebody else is as well. And what would happen if you called them up or wrote them a letter or simply did something generous, not cheap, not giving things away. Generous means expending emotional on behalf of someone else. I've been in your shoes. That's what human beings wake up every morning needing to hear. And we're never going to solve that problem. But every day we can do a little bit to make it a little better. And this is so, so crucial because this episode is coming out election week. And I think we believe that it's all in the hands of somebody else, as opposed to every one of us was on the hook to lead today yeah. in our community with our neighborhood. We would fix a lot. We would solve a lot. And so your words are very powerful, what you just said. And I think part of the problem, though, is that when people go to do it, and you just sort of said, and don't do it for free, it's like, I already have so many misgivings about my worth. So to then charge for it, I'm just going to go back to sleep because who am I to charge for it and sell it 
then I really have to be on the hook and believe that it's worth something. And therefore, I'm going to go back to like just fighting with somebody on Facebook about politics and working at a job I hate because I, if I'm going to be on the hook and sell, I don't think I can handle that. And you say that selling is the dance between possibility and empathy. And it's about turning the you into the we. Just close out with that because this is really where the biggest resistance comes up. Let's start with some real clear facts. Inside the Akimbo workshops, I give, well, I don't do it anymore, but the organization gives scholarships to nonprofits. People who get a free scholarship are five times more likely to drop out than people who pay. Wow. Every time, five times more likely. And the reason is simple. Because if you paid, you're on the hook, you're enrolled, you are counting on something, some costs are real. If you had a choice between <laughs> someone who's going to say, yeah, I'll give you surgery for free when I get around to it, or a real surgeon, you're going to go to a real surgeon because you want them to feel that obligation. So part of the gift of commerce, of the marketplace, is if you care enough about this to pay for it, I care enough about this to me and make you a promise. And that also gives people dignity. That also treats them as a partner. And so I've been working with Acumen for 15 years, and Acumen has shown again and again that there's a really big difference between tossing someone a bag of rice and making them dependent on you showing up next week versus selling them a sewing machine so they can make enough money to buy all the rice they'll ever need, right? That opening the door for somebody to engage with commerce gives them power because now they have the power to say no. And you have the power to learn that what you offered wasn't worth as much as you thought it was. And so that in itself is a generous act. Not everything should cost money, for sure. But yes, you need to make a living and putting yourself on the hook while you make a living, that can be a generous act. Oh, that was so well said. The idea of like, we'll make you this promise, right? And that's really what you're doing. And boy, how generous is that? Um, I want to ask you this last question because I'm just curious. For you, you've done so much <laughs> and you still have so much life left to live, but you've done so much already. And I don't think the money is the motivation for you at this point. What is the motivation for you? You've said so much, you've contributed so much. So what continues to make you still continue to march on? You're not going to believe me if I tell you. It's you. It's you and people like you, Kathy. It's watching people who have so much talent and skill and passion and care get to a new level. And that's what I hold myself to and what I'm hooked on and what I'm trying to accomplish. You're doing it so well. And you're helping all of us like, my circle of my friends who I have the most respect for, like you're the person that we all want to be like because we want to have integrity and we want to really use whatever influence we have to truly serve. And you're the only person that we can go to for that direction. And that's really kind of amazing. I'm, I'm so lucky to hear you say that, but I'm far from the only person. That's one of the things that makes this moment in time so extraordinary. It was impossible a hundred years ago. Who knows what life's going to be like in 10 years. But right now, there are people who are ready to be part of your circle. And when you show up the way you are and the way you and I met is you decided to lead and that attracted me to you. 
And that is where the dancing comes from, is that each one of us has all this leverage and all of these tools, and we shouldn't waste it. Incredible. You are the best. May you just continue to be blessed. May you just continue to have the nachas, as my grandmother would say, to know how many people have more courage because of you and take more risks because of you and do better work because of you. The ripple effects are just beyond. Tell us where we can get this book and uh, where we can find whatever else you want to send us to. Made my day all around. Uh, Get a sample of the book at trustyourself.com. And you can find out about what Akimbo is building at akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O. I have a podcast at akimbo.link. Or you can just type Seth into your favorite search engine and maybe. Right? <laughs> That's the best. Mic drop. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're the best. Oh my gosh. What a conversation. It just felt like 10 masterclasses in one, right? Okay. Here are the takeaways. Number one, put yourself on the hook. When you put yourself on the hook while making a living, that is a generous act. Number two, you're not seeking a job description. You're seeking an emotion. If you choose the work that matches the emotion you're looking for, you've already made huge progress towards where you want to go. Number three, it's a good sign to feel imposter syndrome. It means you're doing the work. Number four, the best way to serve is to be specific. Number five, make the type of contribution and become the type of person that people will search for by name. Number six, whatever we're trying to change, we tell a story, create tension, and give people a way to release that tension. Number seven, we don't start with a Google keyword strategy or a MailChimp list. We start by saying, I looked some people in the eye and told them a story that made a difference to them. And I did it again and again. Number eight, make it good enough. Hit the spec, then ship the work. Bring it to the market and say, I made this for you. Number nine, don't spend your days worrying about your flutter kick when there's someone you can save. And number 10, there might be mistakes you made, things you didn't do or things you didn't say, but all you can do is try to help the next person. Okay, now I want to share a couple wins from some of our students. So Brenda said, I started a podcast, I did a trailer and first episode, and even bigger win is that I didn't want to throw up when Kathy assigned this as our homework. These hard things are getting easier. And another win this week is that someone wants to interview me. What? She says. Brenda, you're such a superstar. I love that you're taking every new step in stride, embracing the process and facing your resistance with open arms, way to get out of your comfort zone. You guys can go give Brenda some love. Her Instagram is at nextchapter.com. Empty nest. Okay, the next one, Lizzie said, I made a podcast trailer, but my real weekly win that made me cry is that a dear friend of mine who has been running an amazing business for years making lollies was inspired by my made to do this journey. So she did her first ever Facebook live workshop. I'm so proud and excited for her. And I hope that this can be the beginning of something even greater for her. She makes lollies for weddings. So she's been hit really hard with COVID. She's a fantastic example of a socially conscious entrepreneur and has done amazing work with refugees and schools here in Swansea. She's so fun and in better times, she rides around Swansea selling lolly goodness from her pop cycle and spreading real joy. Lizzie, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And you're already shining such a beacon of possibility. Look at you. And when you show up for your dreams and you do your work, you inspire other people to do the same. The ripple effect is going to just continue to grow beyond anything you can imagine. Go check out the yummy treats from Lizzie's friend. Her website is popcycle.uk and she's doing her live workshop on her popcycle Facebook page. And you can give Lizzie some love. Her Instagram is at Lizzie Tangui, T-A-N-G-U-A-Y. You guys, I know that this was such a busy week. I know that you're always busy. I know you have a million things going on and you're here. It means the world to me that you're here. Your time is the most precious thing you have. And it's just such an honor that you're here. So thank you for being here. And I'm just curious, 
if you felt inspired by this episode. If you did, can you think of one person? Can you think of two people? Well, you could probably think of 12 people, but can you think of one person who would benefit from hearing this? If so, text them the link, email them the link, or better yet, post about the show on your Instagram and tag a couple friends or tag me and I'll repost it. Now, guess what? We have more amazing stuff coming up next week. Matthew McConaughey is going to be here. So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because it's free to subscribe and you don't want to miss out. There's so many good episodes coming up. I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you on Monday. Like a soldier